Hello, this is Victorian Samplings, and I'm Vanessa Warren. In this episode, we continue our exploration of 19th century material culture, but we're shaking things up to celebrate the end of season two. I asked my co-creators to choose a topic to explore, and as you'll hear, they made great choices. Here they are to say a few words about themselves, their topics, and their guests. Hi, I'm Jessie Cron. I'm a second-year master's student at the University of Manitoba's Department of English, Theatre, Film, and Media. For my master's research, I'm studying authorship and social media. I interviewed Sarah Bull on The Private Case, which is a collection of erotic literature. So Sarah had a lot of interesting things to say about that. Hi, I'm Anne Hung, and I'm a recent graduate of the University of Victoria's Department of English. My research focused on 19th century technologies and ballet. I had the absolute joy of interviewing Graham McMonagall uh, on a shoe of Marie Taglioni's, and Marie Taglioni was a very famous dancer in the 19th century. Hi, this is Natalie Levetri. I am a master's student in the Department of English, Theatre, Film and Media at the University of Manitoba. My academic interests encompass both creative writing and literary analysis, particularly modernist fiction, narrative poetry, personal narratives and constructions of identity. I recently had the chance to read Pamela Gilbert's book, Victorian Skin, Surface Self History, which has a really fascinating chapter on tattoos, which is something I really hadn't expected to be prominent or even discussed during this time period. Um, So I decided to focus my interview with Pamela on tattoos and I look forward to sharing this conversation and I really hope listeners find it as fascinating as I did. Listeners, I think you will. Let's start this episode, which we're calling Maker's Choice, with Dr. Pamela Gilbert and her thoughts on Victorian-era tattoos, both real and imagined. Hello, this is Natalie Lavetri, and I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Pamela Gilbert to the podcast. Pamela is Albert Brick Professor of English at the University of Florida. She has published widely in the areas of Victorian literature, cultural studies, gender, and the history of medicine. Today, we will be discussing her 2019 book, Victorian Skin, Surface Self History, which explores the history of the body, medicine, and realism in the 19th century with special attention to skin and surface. Thank you so much for joining me today, Pamela. Well, thank you so much, Natalie, for the invitation. Pamela, the final chapter of Victorian Skin, Surface Self History, explores the 19th century literary and cultural history of tattoos. I was surprised, quite surprised, by what I learned there about who was tattooed in Victorian Britain. Can you tell us about that? Yes, I think many of us think that tattoos, we, we have the association with sailors, of course, and, and so did Britons of the time. And in part because of Cesare Lombroso and other criminologists at the end of the century, we have the association with criminals, with people perhaps at the lower end and more nomadic end of a society. But actually, there was quite a vogue for tattoos throughout the entire class structure, especially at the end of the century and beginning of the 20th century. And uh, shout out to Jordana Balkin, whose work on this I'm drawing from very heavily. 
she's done some wonderful work on this. You know, so members of the royal family were tattooed and members of the elite were often tattooed. Women were often tattooed in Victorian Britain, especially toward the end of the century, elite women for whom these were luxury items. They were badges of status. And that was also true for men. They often referenced travel, that you could afford to travel somewhere and have a wonderful tattoo done. There was a vogue for Japanese tattooing, and many people traveled to Japan to get their tattoos done there. But you could also go to a tattoo parlor, very elegantly appointed in London with lots of Japanese decor and have your tattoo done there by someone who would at least claim to have learned from the masters back in Japan. In Britain, this would be a symbol of status. Would these be quite expensive pieces? Well, the ones that we're talking about at the very end of the century, when that became a vogue, I would imagine that some of them would be quite expensive. But like most things that are expensive, you could probably have a knockoff done somewhere uh, a little more cheaply. And the thing about that tattooing is that, of course, there were very highly sought after artists and very celebrated tattoo professors, as they called themselves. But it was also something that schoolboys did to each other. As comes up, in fact, in the very famous Tichborne claimant case, which Rowan McWilliam writes about so compellingly, you had two boys in school with plans to go to sea. And so they practiced tattooing on each other. And so when the Tishborn claimant, the Tishborn claimant, of course, was someone who showed up pretending to be, or claiming to be rather, the long lost son and heir of a family who had lost their son at sea. And so this person showed up and said, I am the Tishborn claimant, I'm the heir, and was embraced by the mother who was desperate to, to find her missing child. But one of the things that became dispositive in the discussion of whether this person was the Tichborn claimant was the fact that Roger had been tattooed in school by his friend. And the Tichborn claimant had no tattoos. And uh, he claimed that they had somehow been erased by disease. But in fact, partially because of this case, there were very extensive discussions of whether tattoos could fade, whether they could be erased by disease or by artifice. And the consensus uh, among many forensic experts was that it could not, that there would always be some trace of the process to use to remove the tattoo, even if the tattoo were missing, there would be a scar. You've been doing fascinating work on literary works that feature tattoos. And I'm thinking particularly of the novel, Mr. Meeson's Will. I was wondering if you could introduce that novel to us and what its depictions of tattooing are. Mr. Meeson's Will, published in 1888 by H. Ryder Haggard, is about a woman who, complicated situation as they tend to be in Haggard novels, she's stranded on a deserted island with someone who is dying and who needs to make a will to make reparations to a man that he's disinherited. And this is a man that our heroine is interested in and feels some responsibility for. And so the solution they come up with is that a sailor there that's shipwrecked with them will tattoo the will on her back because they don't have paper, they don't have any way to do it. And so they, they tattoo Mr. Meeson's will <laughs> on the back of the heroine. 
And this is, of course, a painful process. And it evokes all kinds of narratives in the period about captivity narratives, which were quite popular, especially in the United States, of women who had been captured often by Native Americans and forcibly tattooed. Olive Oates was the, the example who was often used, although in fact, it's unclear. It's unclear what the circumstances of that tattooing may have been. It may have been simply a kind of process of bringing her into the community. But in any case, this was a common narrative that women would be tattooed against their will. And of course, it was always aligned with the idea of being raped, that white women were going to be raped by fill in the blank, natives of some kind, who would inscribe, you know, indelibly something on their bodies. And so here you have obviously not that kind of situation, but you have a situation where a woman is being inscribed by men, something that is literally someone else's will <laughs> on her body. And of course she consents to this, but what she perhaps fully doesn't fully understand and what unfolds in a kind of quasi-comic way that's a very weird register throughout the novel is that now she both is herself and is someone else or something else, right? She's a document, she's a testimony, she's someone else's will. And so Haggard really rings the changes on this joke that, you know, what about the lady who's a document? How do we file this heroine? How do we display her? How can we put her in the record? Can she testify in her own voice when she is also literally bearing the testimony of someone else on her body? And of course, it's a comic novel and it all works out. But one of the one of the really interesting moments in the novel is when the court decides to photograph her in order to file this testimony. And she goes out into the street and sees that photographs of her back are being sold in the street. That she's become, as she puts it, public property. So it's an interesting example of the ways that tattooing by inscribing something on the body could make the body testify against itself, as in the case of criminal testimony and criminal identification with tattoos, but also that it could subvert the meaning or the intended meaning of the bearer. Right. You go more into that when you introduce the Saki short story, the background. Could you tell us a little bit about the tattooing in that story? Right. So Saki's The Background is a really wonderful short story. I think it dates to 1911. And the conceit of the short story is that someone has gone and gotten a tattoo by a very renowned tattoo artist in Italy in order to celebrate coming into some money, in order to celebrate, again, coming into an inheritance, interestingly enough. And again, it's a comic story. And what happens is he's unable to pay the artist dies, the wife wants payment, and so she repossesses the tattoo, which means that she repossesses the body of the protagonist, Dipli. And then there's a whole discussion around the artist, and now that he's dead, there's a revaluation of his work, and his work is declared a national treasure. And so again, the tattoo is now a national treasure. And so Dupli is not able to leave the country. He's been basically possessed or repossessed by the Italian government. He then undergoes a kind of series of transformations. He gets involved in being an anarchist. He gets into trouble with other anarchists. And finally, acid is thrown on the tattoo by another political activist. 
and it's effaced. And so the value of that tattoo is erased and he is free to leave the country. And this is obviously a very comic story, but it has real echoes today. There have been lawsuits, for example, about athletes who have tattoos, certain tattoos on their backs or on their bodies that are part of their contracts and that they're not able to be photographed for other purposes or to show those tattoos in other, in other contexts because they are in some way the licensed property of various other interests. And so there's a kind of interesting resonance to what extent when, you, when someone else puts an image on your body or when you agree to have an image put on your body, but then have contracts that have to do with your appearance, to what extent do you really own those as part of your person? To what extent are those included in the concept of personal freedom? It's a very interesting resonance with those kinds of questions that are being lightheartedly raised in Saki's story. But there again, you see a real focus on the idea that people very often in these stories want to express themselves or something about themselves or to, to celebrate something by having something of lasting value on their body, or they're taking on the will of someone else because they're doing it to benefit a third party. And then they've lost some of their own ownership over their own body. They've lost some of their own agency. And I think this is very much bound up in the idea that your body signifies to others in ways that are outside your own control. And when you deliberately inscribe the body, you're inviting a certain kind of reading, which then you may not be able to fully, to fully control. Mm. I like that. That's so interesting how by taking this agency, you're actually kind of giving some of it away, right? Right, potentially. I mean, I know talking to people who've had tattoos, there's very often a a feeling that other people have, that if you're displaying a tattoo, that that's a kind of invitation to conversation about the tattoo. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, particularly for women, that can feel very invasive. But there is something about the tattoo as a, as a special inscription or expression that is often read as a kind of invitation to reading. Pamela, your work on tattooing and about skin more generally in Victorian culture reveals a great deal about class, gender, and the body. Our podcast is about Victorian things, and I'm struck by how the tattoo is a material thing, the result of a material practice, and also is on and inseparable from the human body. What would you like to highlight about tattooing for our listeners? Well, I think um, one thing that tattooing highlights is that it's not entirely separable from the human body. It's not ideally separable from the living human body, although people have done it. But we come to understand the tattoos of the 19th century very often through collections of skin that has been separated from the body and preserved because someone was interested in those tattoos and thought them worth preserving. Gemma Angel has done a lot of work on this, and I benefited from that work at the Welcome Collection, which has several of these preparations. The Charles Bell Collection up at Edinburgh also has several preparations of tattooed skin. Preparations of tattooed skin are in a lot of anatomy museums that date to the period. 
And so you very often do come across pieces of skin with these images that have been preserved, sometimes in liquid preparations, but just as frequently or perhaps more frequently, I would say they've been dried, stretched and preserved in order to retain those tattoos. And those can be very interesting. They give us a lot of information about what kinds of tattoos people tended to have. But they also suggest something, again, about the way that tattoos may be an invitation to reading that exceeds the original intention of the bearer. I'm not entirely sure that all of these people hoped or wished or consented to the uh, separation and preservation of their tattoos from their corpses. But that is how we come to a lot of these materials. And they're, they're very, very interesting. I mean, the other way that we learn a lot about these is in the records of criminologists, but also in hospital records where people describe tattoos that people have on their bodies. Pamela, it was really just such a treat to speak with you. Thank you for sharing your work on skin and tattooing in Victorian culture with me today, and also for exploring skin as a complicated surface that both uh, identifies and alienates. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me, Natalie. Hello, my name is Anne Hung, and today I am joined by Graham McMonagle. Graham is an award-winning interdisciplinary production designer, performer, educator, and historian. They are currently a PhD theater history candidate at the University of Victoria. Their current research, How Does the Paper Ballerina Dance, focuses on 19th century ballet and design and asks questions about the commodified production and reproduction of performance images. Thank you for joining us, Graham. Thank you for having me, Anne. It's a pleasure to be here. The object we'll be discussing today belonged to Marie Taglioni, one of the most prolific ballet dancers of the 19th century. Could you explain the importance of this figure and her connection with the point shoe? I and many others can try. <laughs> Marie Taglioni is retrospectively understood to be the first, and that can be premier as in primary, just as much as it can be first uh, as in originator of style, romantic ballerina. She's credited with this because of, a, in contemporary parlance, a, a, a breakout bit, dancing as a ghost nun in a ballet called Robert the Devil, where she, in a technique that her father had helped her to master, danced spectacularly on the very ends of her toes in what appeared to be a shoe that gave her no support to do so. So that shoe and Taglioni were celebrated for, for this bizarre, perhaps evocative thing that she could do. And it prompted a ballet a little over a year later, a full-length freestanding ballet, and that might be part of Taglioni's fame as well, that her father conceives of a full-length ballet called La Sylphide, in which she dances the role of a sylph throughout, wearing that white, semi-transparent, gauzy garment that we think of as a tutu and that tells us who and what a ballerina is, and dancing throughout with the assistance of a pair of what are very close to regular old dancing shoes that have been discreetly and, I suspect, Taglioni hopes invisibly darned to support 
her toes and upon them support her entire body weight. So Tylione is important because the record holds that she is the first person to do this work of dancing on point and to use it as a narrative device. I really like that you mentioned the act of darning in Taglioni's invention of the point shoe. I find it fascinating that she took this technique, which was typically used by women for domestic work, and repurposed it to serve her in her work reinventing the art form of dance. Absolutely. Certainly reinvent dance in that form to, to block the shoe. The shoes that romantic dancers, ballerinas, wore had no paste or support particularly in the toe of the shoe. So these are their satin slippers, very like young children wear when they go to their first ballet lessons, really with that amount of structural stability. So the darning that Taglioni has done to the shoe, both Veron, the, the director of the opera at the time, and Taglioni herself, they say is done to the shoe by the performer by hand before they wear it to attempt to do this. So rather than darning as a repair, this is darning as the preparation of the tool and as the tool itself. Strange though that may seem, I think if we go about looking at some uh, contemporarily practicing dancers, you'll see, and maybe you do this yourself, I don't know, but you'll see dancers that, that darn a line of cord around the, the tip of the shoe, the very end of the, the shoe, so that they, to push the foot a little forward, to hold the foot a little back, to manipulate the way that that standard issue shoe operates, and they'll do that even before the work happens. And I, I think it's beautiful that Taglioni brings her own form of embellishment, that labored work, which, you know, we probably can see gender in sewing, we can see practice in, in, in this sewing material, in this, the discretion of its embellishment. I think it's lovely that Taglioni is echoed every time a dancer picks up one of those painfully sharp, very long, very strong darning needles that they sell people at dance shops. So this object, the shoe of Taglioni's, which is on display at the V&A, was unique in a few ways. We'll link to it on our website, but would you be able to provide a description of this fascinating object and maybe point out what first stood out to you as a professional dancer and designer? I can, thank you, yeah. So we're talking about a little black shoe, which the V&A, I love the V&A's labeling. It's called Shoe. <laughs> but it's a little black ballet slipper that who, whose provenance tells us that it is a, it is a, the the property of or was once the property of Marie Taglioni. It's little by contemporary sizing. Its total length is twenty one centimeters, nearly eight and a half inches. But it's only four centimeters across the ball of the foot. That is a little less than two inches wide on what ballet dancers today would call the box of the shoe. Decorated though it is with some tone-on-tone -tone ribbon across the box, the shoe is aesthetically simple and uh, closely resembles a pedestrian street shoe of the European 1840s. Its dark silk satin is embellished with three lines of ribbon that are carefully sewn down. Its throat, the foot opening, is bound in off-white silk grosgrain, which encases a taped drawstring, the ends of which emerge at the front of the shoe to be tied. The interior sole and body of the shoe are lined with white kid leather and cotton. The outsole is also light-colored leather. On that sole, it's marked in three points by cobbler's nails that hold it to the shoe. Uh, 
and punched with a maker's mark, a capital N. The lower sides of the shoes surrounding the sole and working along and around the toe are darned in a cotton of the color matching the satin it covers. Both the inner and outer sole are inscribed. The inner is signed with Taglioni's name. The spoon-shaped outer sole has two areas of inscription. Handwriting on the forefoot reads, St. Petersburg, 1 March 1842, Shoes with which I danced my soiree of farewell at the home of the Empress, Anishkov Palace, in a Spanish dance, the Herta and the Cachucha, M. Taglioni. On the heel of the sole is written, Souvenir to Lady Selina Bidwell from Marie Taglioni, London, October 1877. You noted the maker's mark punched into the shoe, and I think that's so interesting to consider that before Taglioni even begins her process of darning and performing in these shoes, there's a whole other story of craftsmanship. Yes, I think it really beautiful. You know, there's a scholar, Elspeth Brown, that talks about invisible labor. And in that tiny maker's mark, the N, I don't know who the N is, but that, that is a shoemaker's practice that carries forward, particularly in performance shoes to this day. There will be a little leather punch in the, in the sole of ballet slippers. But that N was a, a handmaker, and as I understand, Taglioni's shoes were all made by N. Returning to this particular shoe, the darning that we discussed earlier, as well as the inscriptions, complicate its functions as a shoe, making it into both a tool and a record of performance. How does this complication further our understanding of ballet in the 19th century? That's that's something that really appealed to me in this object, these two pieces of, of record on it. I think it's, it's pretty possible to understand that forefoot writing where she's written what she did in the shoe as something that that resonated with me. Certainly the dancers that I know, and I do this myself, will mark on the inside of the shoe what I, what I used the shoe for. And it's wonderful, particularly those people that dance on point, uh, will mark what they have done in a shoe in a contemporary space as a reminder of what they might still be able to get out of that shoe. So if somebody has worn out the shoe doing uh, uh, doing Black Swan and it's the it's the left shoe and so they've done lots of perroid fuete, lots of work on that one particular shoe, that shoe might be quite dead. But if they're looking for a dead shoe, they can pull out a Black Swan shoe. So I thought, oh, this is so, so like contemporary performance practice or performer practice. But then that inscription on the sole Reminds me of another thing that happens. I think, you know, small people or uh, very wealthy people line up outside of theaters and have the stars of today sign shoes to them, inscribe shoes to them. But in signing her shoe, Taglioni, just I suppose as Farrell um, did, in signing that shoe, she changes its use from a tool of the trade and, and a piece of work and then further, it's sort of become a record of the work. I did it here. I wore this shoe for this kind of purpose into something that is a memento. And it attaches, I think, I'm scared to say this, but it attaches emotional and thereby probably fiscal value to that shoe that changes it, its gift, its attachment to its owner. It's amazing the stories and depth of interpretation available in such an unassuming object as this little shoe. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. My pleasure to be here.
You have been listening to Graham McMonagle on the history of the point shoe, Marie Taglioni, and 19th century ballet. For links to images of Taglioni's shoe at the VNA and further reading on these topics, please visit craftingcommunities.net. Victorian samplers, I'm Jessie Cron. Today I'm speaking with Sarah Bull, an assistant professor in the Department of English at Toronto Metropolitan University. Sarah is going to tell me about The Private Case, a collection with a very particular theme. Sarah, could you tell us what The Private Case is and what it contains? Absolutely. So The Private Case was, and remains, a collection in the British Museum Library um, devoted to offensive works. So those that the museum authorities deem subversive to the throne, subversive to religion, um, or of proper or obscene character. And it's thought to have been established around 1857 at the height of mid-century debates about obscenity in Britain. At one point it held up to 4,000 books. Um, and according to the British Library, editions were made to the private case until 1990. So very late, although there were very few um, uh, as you know, you get toward the end of the 20th century. Its formation followed the establishment of various European museum collections in the 18th and 19th centuries um, that segregated ex sexually explicit antiquities and other objects that were thought to be offensive uh, from the rest of the collections. There's a huge mythology around these kinds of collections. There are lots of books on them. There's even a 2009 documentary by Peter Wadzik called uh, Secret Museums. Prior to the 1970s and even afterward, these kinds of collections could be difficult to access um, and even to find out about. They were unlisted, so you would have to know somebody and know through word of mouth that they were even around. This isn't true today. So the Paris Bibliothèque Nationale's Enfer collection, for example, um, was part of a major uh, exhibition in 2007 and 2008. Part of Oxford's Phi collection, of another similar collection uh, have been displayed. Um, and the private case is now uh, available for researchers to study. So researchers can access private case materials in the British Library. So you usually have to sit at a special desk in view of the librarians. Much of it has been digitized and is in, it's actually in a Gale Cengage collection that was recently released, uh, Archives of Sexuality and Gender. It also no longer exists in the way that it did in the 19th century. Many contents of the private case were actually moved to the general collection. So today the private case only has about uh, 2,500 items remaining. Was it bibliographers who were in charge of collecting and categorizing items in the private case? It wasn't really bibliographers who were in charge of, of the private case material, um, so much as uh, librarian admin administrators who were tasked with kind of uh, arranging and, and collections and deciding access. So many of the items in the private case um, came to the British Museum Library through donation. They have this material and they have to figure out what to do with it. Um, and, and putting it in an unlisted collection is one way that they can do this. Sometimes it was because very uh, influential collectors, most famously Henry Spencer Ashby, for example, collected quite a wide range of materials, some of which uh, the British Library wanted very much and some of which it didn't necessarily want so much, uh, like Ashby's very large collection of explicit material. But 
in his case, he bequeathed both to the British Museum. So then they have to decide what to do with it. Was the perception of obscene or erotic material that these librarians had in alignment with what people in the public considered to be obscene or erotic? That's a really good question. So it's interesting because there's no really clear or uniform definition of obscenity during this period. And there's little general agreement about exactly what's decent or indecent. There's a famous landmark ruling um, in the case of R.V. Hicklin um, in 1868, which defined obscenity as matter which has the tendency to deprave and corrupt those into whose hands it may fall. So basically anything that a judge or magistrate thought would be damaging to people who are likely to read it. You'll notice that there is there no description of any lang particular language or imagery or genre. And it's also implicitly a very class and gendered kind of definition of obscenity in that people who were thought likely to be damaged by reading um, tended to be people who are women, mm -hmm. children, young men, working class men, basically anybody who wasn't a professional white man who was older. This does probably reflect a common understanding of what was obscene, but in practice, there were major differences of opinion about specific items. Everyone seems to have thought that extremely explicit novels, novels that we now consider central to the history of pornography, obscene, um, including people who made and sold them. And we have, uh, for example, court transcripts uh, where they say, yes, that is obscene. Um, but somebody gave it to me or something like that. Many police officers and court witnesses and even magistrates and judges differed when it came to other kinds of material. So in the mid 19th century, for example, many didn't consider cheap medical works on sexual matters obscene or body song and joke books and illustrations obscene, even though these could be quite explicit. In police raids, for example, some would report things like, all we found are these medical works, <laughs> all these, <laughs> these humorous works. So the librarians are tasked with a pretty hard problem trying to decide what, what will be offensive to people in the library, what might damage people in the library in, a, in an environment where this isn't all that clear. Does the private case show a dissolving membrane between scientific literature and erotica? That's a really good question, and it was a question that they struggled a lot with. There were scientific texts in the private case, for example. Um, there's one great essay by a lawyer who had been in contact with the British Museum in the late 19th century, who discovered that works that he considered scientific and educational works by uh, early sexologists, for example, had been put into the private case mm -hmm. and that a, a donor had intended to, to donate some of Havelock Ellis's writings, uh, the, the early sexologist, to the British Museum only to discover that if he did, those two, it was that they would go into the private case. So he says, okay, this is ridiculous. These are texts that we really need, um, texts that are really important to the scientific study of sexuality. So this is a hard issue, and it's a really old issue too. You're, you're absolutely right that there, there's a long history of understanding that sexual knowledge and sexual pleasure aren't necessarily distinct and seeing scientific uh, representations as potentially erotic. So starting even 
you know, in the 13th century, you see people talking about uh, the secrets of women and, and sexual knowledge is framed as a secret. And from about the 18th century, sexual knowledge is increasingly seen as empirical and authoritative. So mm -hmm. it's no longer something you gain by experience, but it's like core facts that have to be discovered and ordered and taught and used mm -hmm. appropriately. It's increasingly reconceptualized as scientific knowledge, though people aren't using that term yet. But we also see increasing awareness from this period that knowledge and pleasure aren't really mutually exclusive, an acknowledgement that reading about sexual body parts and acts and desires, even in something like an anatomy book or a book about venereal disease, which I have read a lot of books about venereal disease and they're not that sexy, <laughs> but there's, there's an understanding that they could be arousing, mm -hmm. right? And we see people like Edmund Curl, who's the first person to be tried for distributing obscenity in the 1720s, dealing in works that, that are marketed as medical and that contain medical information, but they're also clearly being marketed as and, and, and being meant to be read as titillating material as well. Science and medicine certainly becomes a real mainstay of the pornography trade, like really well into the 20th century books on procreation and contraception and sexology. But there's also the understanding I, um, among kind of authorities and also seemingly from, you know, witness statements and things like that, just kind of in the, in the ordinary public sphere, that it's also necessary for mm -hmm. medical books to talk about sex. That this is something you actually, that, that can't be censored or you can't talk about sex and euphemism in a medical or scientific book because that could create a lot of confusion yeah. so there's this kind of constant discussion of okay it could be obscene maybe scientific representations are obscene and maybe they do belong in a collection like the private case but at the same time they're necessarily so they can't they can't help but talk about sex in quite explicit terms because we need that for knowledge I might be reaching a bit here, but do you think there's an overlap between anthropology and erotica? Like, as trade globalizes and foreign media enters domestic spaces, are people who are deciding what is obscene alarmed by the presence of foreign media in the marketplace? That's a really great question. So, yeah, anthropology and erotica has such a a, a really close relationship and, and a long one you'd be kind of surprised so there's an 18th century genre that continues into the 19th century um where basically they're they're books that describe marriage practices around the world they're proto-anthropological kind of texts that describe um sexual and reproductive practices and also kind of child rearing practices of of foreign people in ways that are, they're, they're certainly framed as educational and they are as educational and they're sold to, you know, middle-class readers. Some of them are written by women. There's also uh, an eroticism to those descriptions. There are these kind of uh, very vivid descriptions of Turkish harems and kind of the beauty <laughs> of foreign women. Um, and, and kind of like, like there's a, a, a fascination with, with the foreign that's, that's sexualized and racialized. This is, this is very much part of the history of anthropology. So by the mid-19th century, um, you get men who belong to institutions like the Anthropological Society of London who become very interested in sex and uh, foreign kind of sexuality and uh, sexual practices. 
and they write a lot about a lot about this but but there's there's they're also they're perhaps too interested in yeah. in some ways it, it's clear that there's a there's an element of there's certain they're certainly very racist yeah. um they they certainly objectify uh people in other cultures and in quite problematic ways but they're 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 also like very deeply invested in a kind of fantasy of foreign sexuality by by kind of the late 19th century a lot of this stuff is is really circulating kind of um in expensive more expensive books the kama sutra is translated uh in the 1880s but it's done through a private society uh, by subscription only Ah. so it's very expensive and it's available to wealthy men um but it's not really something it's it certainly advertised and, t- and talked about as as, as erotic but it's it, it's not something that's really circulating right widely by that right. period not like in the 18th and early 19th century these marriage around the world kind of texts are are circulating openly and widely so quite a difference in audience through this whole history, there's there's definitely like like it's very classed and gendered. Like mm-hmm. um, men who see themselves as as men of science, not exclusively, but but often see themselves as the only people who can really uh, handle this kind of material. Does the private case reveal continuities or differences between how people in the 19th century would have viewed obscene material and? how we in the 21st century view obscene material? That's a really interesting question. As I said, there's a huge mythology that 19th century bibliographers constructed themselves to a great degree around kind of these secret collections or collections of forbidden books, which even at the time weren't all forbidden. Um, in that some of them actually circulated quite widely. Um, some of them weren't really explicit. There's this kind of whole mythology that builds up around these collections. And I think I think the continued fascination with, is partly so that we can see um, or imagine what was considered forbidden at a different time. I taught a class on, on secret museums a few years ago, and my students at once were fascinated, I, I think, by... Um, what what now appears to be kind of the banality of some of these <laughs> some of these works they read some bibliographies of uh erotic literature uh that had been in the private case or they read some medical texts that had been in it and and really they did not find it you know that exciting it's, it's stuff that that is sometimes hard to imagine um being considered potentially damaging today but at the same time these collections also contain other items that I think surprise us in that we sometimes forget that people in the past were also fascinated by sex, also wanted to be aroused, um, and that are sometimes very explicit. I think today it's easy to imagine that they'd be uh, banned. Um, And occasionally you come across material where were they outside the private case, you can imagine that they would be banned today. Like there's some material involving children, for example, um, that we would certainly consider obscene today. So it both offers us an opportunity to see change over time, but also kind of to recognize (laughs) um, and and, and kind of offers an opportunity to think about uh, what we consider kind of socially acceptable. This has been a super fun talk. Thank you so much, Sarah, for all that you've taught me today. Thank you very much for inviting me to join you. 
thanks again to Pamela Gilbert, Graham McMonagall, and Sarah Bull. Before I thank my student co-creators, I'd like to thank you for listening. The Victorian Samplings team is delighted you've joined us for our second season, and we hope you'll join us again for our third. We also hope you'll help us grow our audience by sharing Victorian Samplings with friends, students, colleagues, fellow crafters, neighbors, anyone who might be curious about Victorian things and the stories they tell. Stay in touch by emailing us at craftyvictorians at gmail.com, by following us on Twitter at craftyvictorian, and by visiting our website, craftingcommunities.net. So now, thank you to student team members Jesse Cron and Anne Hung and Natalie Lovetri for all the work they did to create this episode. Victorian Samplings was recorded and produced on the territory of the Lunquangan and Sanchothan-speaking communities of the Songhees, Esquimo, and Wasanage peoples, and on Treaty 1 territory, traditional land of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and homeland of the Métis Nation. Victorian Samplings is the podcast of the Crafting Communities Project, which is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Victorian Studies Association of Western Canada, and the Universities of Alberta, Manitoba, and Victoria. The project is a collaboration between Andrew Corda, Mary Elizabeth Layton, and me, Vanessa Warren. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>